0: That's 818-985-KPFK. Thank you. We're in this together. Do your part. Help keep KPFK alive. 818-985-5735.
1: You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and on the web at kpfk.org, Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond.
2: Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right.
3: Well, good stand afternoon, up, good afternoon, my friends and listeners. This is the Lawyers Guild right. Show. I'm Jim Lafferty, and along up, with my co-host up. Maria Hall, bringing you this week's edition of the show. I hope all is well. Staying dry, if you've been able to stay dry. Maria, have you been able to stay dry?
4: Oh, I have, but I don't mind going out in the rain. You don't. As long as it's not on the freeway.
3: There you go. There you go. I know you have to tuck that great dog for a walk no matter what. Well, let our folks know, let our listeners know what they're in store for if they stay tuned, and I hope they do.
4: Yes, yes. Uh, We have a great show again today. First, we'll be speaking with our friend, constitutional scholar and activist, Stephen Rohde, about South Africa's genocide case against Israel, and that's the one playing out in the International Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. Then, in our second half hour, we'll speak with human rights lawyer, Joanna Naples Mitchell, about the new California law that bans the term, quote unquote, excited delirium, and that's usually used by law enforcement when people die in police custody. It's usually a euphemism for excessive force. Indeed. Um, and her report for Physicians for Human Rights was key in passing that legislation. So we're look, looking forward to both of those segments.
3: Excellent, excellent. And I, I think our one with the brother Rodley is first. I'll get right started. Before I do, just let me take about 30 seconds to remind you that we always need your support and um, and so uh, please give us a call during the show today at some point you know at 818985 of 50 700 Uh, 5735 is the way to do it 985-5735 or go on our website, you can do it that way oh, we're featuring today The Hidden History of the War on Voting by Tom Hartman that book's been going off the racks and going out of here very fast so you want to get a hold of a copy, that's $75 for $25 you're, you're a member of the family here and that's important. Uh, that's important in a lot of ways to you. It's f- certainly important to us almost as much as, as the money that, that you you bring us over the years by being a member. So please do that. Give us a call, as I say, at 818-985-KPFK or go on our website And to make the pledge at some point during the show, my friends, Um, and we never take long times for fun drives here anymore. We don't spend 20 minutes of the hour. You'll hear about this maybe for another 30 seconds here and there, but that's it. So let me begin on the first topic, which has to do with that South African government's case um, around uh, the question of Israel and, and genocide. The issue, after all, of whether or not Israel is in its war against the Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank, uh, committing genocide is, of course, hotly debated. In this country and in many other places as well, of course, various international human rights groups, high-ranking United Nations officials, and, and other experts on what constitutes genocide are already pretty really clear that Israel has been And it continues to commit genocide against the Palestinian people. Well, the South African government obviously felt so strongly that Israel is committing genocide that it filed what is called an application against Israel, accusing them of genocide. And it filed that in the world's highest court, the International Court of Justice. And that case has now already been preliminarily argued, and while the court has not yet ruled on the merits of the genocide allegations, the court did issue preliminary remedies that are to be taken in the case uh, that, among other matters, ordered Israel to take certain steps to prevent acts of genocide. That's pretty interesting. The court did not, however, order a ceasefire as many had hoped it might. Well, what is the International Court of Justice? How does it operate and with what authority does it have? What constitutes the crime of genocide anyway under international law? And how significant, how meaningful are the court's preliminary orders in this case? Might it help, even though they didn't order to bring about a ceasefire or an earlier end to the war? Well, to help us answer these and other questions, of course, we turn, as always, to our go-to expert on such matters, Stephen Rohde. Mr. Rohde is a noted constitutional law scholar and activist. He is the past chair of the ACLU Foundation of Southern California. He's the founder and the current chair of the group Interfaith Communities United for Justice and Peace. The author of American Words of Freedom, and of the book entitled Freedom of Assembly. Steve Rody is also a regular contributor to the Los Angeles Review of Books and to Truthdig, and he is a leader in the campaign to free the imprisoned investigative journalist Julian Assange, and that case is coming to a head right now over in Europe as well. We'll be talking more about that in the weeks ahead, I'm sure. Well, Steve Rody, a very warm welcome back to The Lawyer's Guild Show.
0: Thank you very much, Jim and Maria. Uh, it's uh, really a pleasure. Although that term always <laughs> seems strange when you're talking yeah. about genocide, but. Uh, the pleasure part is being with the two of you.
3: Well, and with you two as always, Steve. I wonder, Steve, if you wouldn't first give our listeners a a brief description of the International Court of Justice, who are its judges, you know, what's its jurisdiction, what types of disputes does it normally handle, so that people have a sense of the court we're talking about.
0: Yes. Uh, In 1948, uh, in the wake of the Holocaust, Uh, which is not uh, immaterial in what we're discussing Mm -hmm. Uh, today—a group of nations uh, gathered within the United Nations to form the International Court of Justice. Uh, Today, 153 state parties uh, have uh, committed to the Convention Against Genocide, uh, in relevant part today, uh, Israel, the United States, uh, and South Africa are all parties to that convention. Now, it is one part of uh, international law uh, focusing exclusively on genocide. Uh, we may comment later that there is the separate international criminal court, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, currently entertaining Uh, proceedings uh, alleging war crimes and crimes against humanity against Israel and Hamas. Hamas is not a state party uh, at the uh, International Court on on Justice, so uh, the only parties before the court in this case are member states, uh, and in this case Israel. Many people asked Uh, Why was no proceeding filed against Hamas? And that's simply the jurisdiction of the ICJ uh, does not reach Hamas. And so uh, under that court, there are generally 15 uh, judges from all over the world. These are renowned jurists who have served in their own countries and are now serving on the International Court of Justice. Whereas in this case, a proceeding involves parties who were not did not have judges on the court, two ad hoc judges are appointed. Uh, and in this case, a, a South African judge and an Israeli judge were appointed to the court, uh, making it a court of 17 judges. Uh, currently, the senior judge of the court happens to be the judge from the United States of America, which has some relevance uh, later on Mm -hmm. in our discussion. The really key principle is the definition of genocide, and we'll discuss this and we'll come back to it several times. Uh, In essence, uh, under this uh, court's jurisdiction, genocide is defined as any of certain specified acts, quote, committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, uh, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And then five acts are specified. Killing, causing or serious bodily or mental harm, inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about the group's physical destruction, in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births uh, within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So those are the key principles, and uh, we'll elaborate on those Mm -hmm. as we go along.
4: Mm. Well, Stephen Rohde, what are the central questions that the court was asked to rule on in the South African application against Israel?
0: Yes, this is a good point uh, to divide the court's uh, jurisdiction into its long-term, plenary jurisdiction, if you will. Uh, Petitions for uh, genocide and several have been heard before this court uh, since 1948. Uh, They can take years to be heard as evidence is gathered, as testimony is collected and hearings are held. But fortunately, the court and the convention in its wisdom provides for provisional remedies so that a court can act quickly and immediately under certain circumstances. In uh, each area, it has to be satisfied that it has jurisdiction over the parties. It has to examine the question whether there were acts of genocide committed uh, it has to look at whether those acts were committed with genocidal intent uh and eventually it has to look at whether there are remedies that the court itself can order uh, to address uh these acts of genocide well steve um thank
3: you for that definition of of the genocide um and but but I guess what i'm asking you is that is so what what must be shown? You've told us the elements of it. What kind of evidence must be presented um, or suggested it's going to be presented when these opening statements, for example, are made? What must be shown, indeed, by South Africa in support of its charge that Israel is committing genocide?
0: Yes. So uh, South Africa filed, and this may blend into your next question, but mm-hmm. we can cover it, mm-hmm. uh, Uh, South Africa on December 29 of last year filed an extensive uh, application, it's called. I would urge everyone listening and uh, others that uh, our voices reach to go to the International Court of Justice website. It's very accessible. Uh, It sets forth the application by South Africa, the answer uh, by Israel. Uh, and then eventually the ruling of the court on January 26. I don't think it's incidental that it was South Africa that uh, brought this petition. Uh, South Africa, of course, the victim of apartheid uh, and racial subjugation and oppression uh, has come out of that period uh, and is uh, acting under the rule of law. And as the petition demonstrates, it was moved uh, to file this uh, petition on December uh, 29. Uh, It had a significant uh, burden of proof. Uh, No one takes accusations of genocide lightly uh, on all sides of uh, any political uh, question. Uh, But the South African uh, petition was extraordinary in its detail. Uh, recognizing that we are considering a, a question of genocide in the midst of the military action that is currently going on. This is not uh, a backwards-looking examination of what has passed, uh, but it's a uh, an examination of what is very uh, real uh, and, and the people who are suffering. Uh, the South African petition opens by recognizing the Uh, attacks by Hamas on October 7, Uh, the court's very explicit, uh, although Hamas is not before the court in describing those attacks, uh, the viciousness of them and the taking of hostages. In fact, uh, eventually the court, although it couldn't order anything uh, directly to Hamas, uh, does recognize the plight of the hostages and, and calls for their immediate release. In this context, the court had an interesting uh, challenge. It was not going to, and wasn't asked to make a ultimate finding of genocide. It was in this area of provisional remedies. And so there's a very important term uh, that's introduced at this stage, which is plausibility. Has a plausible case been made by South Africa that... Um, Israel uh, in uh, Gaza uh, is engaged in genocide. Now, genocide itself, I've defined it, but there are separate violations, uh, not only committing genocide, but a party is ordered by its uh, accession to the convention to prevent and punish uh, acts of genocide Uh, as well as to not engage in the incitement to uh, genocide, which becomes uh, very relevant uh, in this case. Uh, South Africa alleged uh, that uh, there was intent on the part of the government of uh, Israel to commit genocide or these subcategories. Uh, They cited extensive evidence first of the Uh, acts in the Gaza Strip. What is Israel doing? Uh, The catalog is harrowing. Um, Any of us who are staying current in the news uh, know about uh, the the deaths of innocent civilians and children, the destruction of property. uh, In one uh, brief section of the South African application, Uh, uh, no one can ignore the devastation that is going on uh, in that area, and it's a very tight, uh, clear description uh, of that devastation. Now, therefore, South Africa alleges and must prove that the acts of uh, Israel themselves are evidence of intent. One looks at what a party does uh, to consider its intent. But the burden is greater and South Africa met it by alleging what uh, Israeli officials uh, have said about their intentions, their dehumanizing language, their intent uh, to eliminate uh, Palestinians. Those quotations are there, they are in both the petition, the application by South Africa, and eventually in the uh, ultimate decision, which we'll uh, discuss in a moment. So that was the burden of South Africa. It put together an extraordinary presentation uh, of that uh, evidence as it could gather it so far without having access to Gaza itself. And that set the stage for the hearings uh, that were held in this case. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, and and as you uh, as I said, and I think you said as well, Steve, during the course of our discussion so far, uh, late in January, following these initial arguments, and I, I would double down on what you said, Steve. Include uh, encourage people to go to the uh, you know to the uh, internet, to the websites and what have you, and look up. Uh, it's easy to find the case and and listen um, uh, where you can to some of the opening statements. Um, quite extraordinary. Um, uh, as a as a lawyer, I was particularly impressed. I have to say, uh, not not simply given my bias, but the level of, preparati- of, of preparation of of what the uh, South African government's lawyer said in that and in those initial and in those initial. So listen to those folks and here – here that'll give a good sense of what this case was about. Uh, and also now, as as Steve Rody has explained. Uh, they have the ability to issue provisional orders because it will take some time to thoroughly investigate the whole matter and come up with a conclusion. Indeed, that could be a year or two or more away. So um, tell us about that. I mean, I've already mentioned that a lot of us had hoped that they'd call for a ceasefire. Uh, as a preliminary order, they did not do that. But they did a number of other things. they They ordered another a bunch of other things that were quite significant, weren't they, Steve? Tell us about those.
0: Yes, and I want to combine that with a brief discussion of the oral arguments on yes. december twenty nine. It was a two day hearing. Uh, anyone uh, that even has the slightest interest and in, and everyone should have the greatest interest in this matter. Uh, South Africa used a series of lawyers, they, they articulated uh, their case, they summarized it. Uh, this is uh, different from uh, oral arguments uh, any of us may have participated in uh, in the United States or observed. Uh, the the judges asked no questions. Uh, each side used multiple lawyers to uh, present their case. On the second day, uh, Israel's lawyer presented their case. And anyone can uh, hear and read this for themselves. Uh, It was uh, uh, in large part an ad hominem attack on South Africa. Uh, The Israeli lawyers uh, called South Africa the legal arm of Hamas. They belittled uh, South Africa's contentions. Uh, They attempted to uh, shift blame away from themselves. Uh, They uh, did a degree of whataboutism uh, toward other uh, uh, alleged genocide around the world, Uh, uh, and they uh, seriously made an effort to undermine the allegations of intent. Uh, And uh, right after those hearings, uh, they submitted uh, declassified memoranda about 30 memos, which they said showed the opposite of intent, uh, because Israel uh, allegedly is engaging in humanitarian aid Mm. uh, and other steps inconsistent with the intent to uh, commit genocide. But uh, if it's appropriate for me to turn to the opinion of the court, Yes, yes. on uh, January 26, uh, 15 uh, judges... Uh, including the United States judge, agreed with all aspects of the uh, opinion and the remedies, the provisional remedies that were granted. Uh, Even the Israeli judge joined in two of those remedies, thereby implicitly finding grounds uh, for jurisdiction as well as the minimum standard that there was plausible evidence that the rights of the Palestinian people uh, had been violated. Uh, There was one uh, dissent from uh, the entire case, uh, but there was a vast uh, unanimity. Uh, The opinion, which I do encourage everyone to read, it's clear-cut, it's readable, uh, specifically found sufficient evidence of jurisdiction that there was a dispute It had to be between South Africa and Israel over whether or not Israel was uh, committing genocide. They found that that threshold was met. They then went on to catalog the acts of uh, genocidal conduct, which could be eventually found to constitute genocide. And they met the um, plausible standard that was sufficient at this stage Uh, to implement provisional remedies. Provisional remedies, uh, for many of us, are similar to a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction at the outset of a uh, civil lawsuit meant to uh, try to ensure that any ultimate remedy uh, will be preserved. So, the court issued a series of uh, six uh, implementations and I found it interesting that they specifically ruled that Israel should decease from the killing of members of the group. Uh, many have said this was not a ceasefire of military actions. But, yeah. but the very first act was to stop killing members of the group, to stop causing seriously, serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group to stop deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction uh, and to impose measures intended to prevent uh, births within the group. Um, uh, Israel was ordered by a vote of uh, 12 to 2 uh, to ensure immediate uh, military does not commit any acts uh, described above by a 16 to 1 vote with the Israeli judge joining that they are to take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to the Palestinians. And in another 16 to 1 vote, uh, they were ordered to take immediate and effective measures to uh, preserve the needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address adverse conditions of life facing the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. They were ordered not to per, to uh, destroy any evidence, and they were ordered within 30 days to report back to the court um, on their compliance with these orders.
4: So, Steve Rody, um unfortunately we are running out of time quickly, but we want to get in there. Um, so. Apparently, it'll take a good two or three years before the court makes its final rulings. Is, is that your estimate? Um, we'd hope that the present Israeli-Palestinian war would be over by then. Um, so what significance will its rulings have? And can it enforce any rulings it may make against Israel? Yes,
0: this is very important. And I'll try to be brief. What's next is that the uh, orders go to the Security Council. The court itself has uh, no no police force, no enforcement mechanism. It goes to the Security Council. Now, any member of the five-member Security Council can veto uh, the ruling, and there is great fear uh, among many of us that the United States, sitting on the Security Council, will veto. Uh, the ruling, uh, the provisional rulings of the court, but I I want to be sure we fit in today uh, to a concept I think very few people are aware of, which is the uniting for peace alternative that the General Assembly had yes in 1950 of all countries the United States passed uh, moved and it passed the UN. Uh, That if the Security Council is deadlocked because of a veto, if there is a threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or an act of aggression, then member states can take collective action, including in the case of a breach of peace or act of aggression, the use of armed uh, forces when necessary to maintain or restore international peace and security. This uh, provision, little known to many, has been used 13 times between 1951 and 2022. Uh, It's even been used in 1980 to call for the unconditional and total withdrawal of Israel from territories occupied since 1967. Uh, It's very important that we know that that exists. I think there can be worldwide Uh, action and mobilization. Uh, I love the name of this resolution, Uniting for Peace. Uh, It means that even if the efforts of this court are frustrated, uh, even at this early stage, uh, that people can mobilize and organize around this uh, to call for the Uniting for Peace alternative to ensure that these resolutions are enforced. We have not heard the last, even of the ICJ this month. Uh, Israel must return its report uh, by February 26. Um, Unfortunately, Israel has killed upwards of 1,000 Palestinians, uh, at least since the order was issued, and uh, there's no signs that it is complying. It will face that court again in its report, Uh, And you are hearing it from me today uh, that I believe it is very possible the court will reconvene itself to further enforce its provisional orders and take exception to any report by the Israeli government that does not demonstrate honest, good faith, and genuine compliance with the provisional measures. Yes,
3: and I I think you're... I'd be surprised if you are not right about that, Steve Rohde. Um, that would certainly be the proper thing for them to do. And and given the near unanimity so far on the court with respect to these very sensitive issues, I, too, believe that will be uh, what they will do. But we are now pretty much out of time. Uh, so I want to simply ask you, Steve, uh, any quick final thoughts, but also where can our listeners follow your writings? Remind our listeners of that.
0: Well, thank you, uh- Jim, uh, you you can look me up on the Internet. I foolishly never created a website for (laughs) myself years ago. But all of my writings at the uh, Truth Dig, uh, at L.A. Progressive, at uh, Los Angeles Review of Books uh, are uh, amply available to uh, all of you. Uh, I really encourage you and and invite you uh, to read uh, I think free speech you know is one of my important mm-hmm, issues mm-hmm. and free speech today is is being trashed on college campuses as uh pro-palestinian speakers are being canceled and student groups are being canceled Indeed. it's a very dangerous uh situation that itself uh deserves the three of us uh, revisiting on a future occasion.
3: Oh we'll do that. We I assure you we will do that as we've done it with you before here on this on this show and um also uh, yes despite that repression it is wonderful to see uh, not only here in the united states of course but all over the world the the enormous protests uh, the unity of people and understanding very clearly because it's pretty clear to understand at any human level the genocide that is being created and and uh, and the protests continue and will continue and i think that along with the um the the very strong opinion of the uh International uh, Court of Justice will hopefully have some some sobering effect, although it hasn't had enough yet on Israel. But Steve Rody, thank you for joining us today. We'll be back with you when that's appropriate. Friends who are listening, stay tuned. We're going to have a very short uh, little break here, and then we'll be right back with you with a very important topic having to do with getting rid of what the police always do when somebody dies or is brutalized in custody, claiming that it had really nothing to do with them. <laughs> Listening to KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles, and streaming across the globe at kpfk.org. Radio powered by the people. And as promised, we work quickly uh, with that uh, pause. We're right back with you. The Lawyers Guild Show, Jim Lafferty and Maria Hall, the co-hosts. Uh, and we just spent the first half hour talking about the South African uh, genocide case against Israel. Uh, and now something much, much closer to home, also involving violence, um, having to do with the LAPD. I know that shocks you. Um, And we're going to get to that in about uh, 30 seconds as well. But I I want to remind everybody again that um, uh, we don't spend much time now during our shows pitching for your support. But but that doesn't mean we need it any less. It's not like we suddenly got flush. Uh, In fact, uh, quite the opposite is true. But we're living such a critically important time. We just felt it was important not to spend so much time on Fund Drive trusting you, if you will, our listeners, to nevertheless Pick up the phone and call us, 818-985-5735, or go to the KPFK website, and you'll find out the many ways we say thank you when you do. Uh, right now, during the Lawyers Guild show, we're, we're suggesting, first of all, the uh, hidden history of the war on voting. Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back? It's a New York Times best-selling uh, book by Tom Hartman, one of the programmers here. Uh, that's for $75, $25 you're a member. And that's that's as valuable to us really as anything because then you're really part of the family here. And that's so critically important. We're part of the – We this is an integral part of the entire progressive movement in L.A. When you contribute to KPFK, you contribute – to my organization, the National Lawyers Guild. You contribute to ACLU, you contribute to Black Lives Matter, you contribute to, you name it, all the immigrant rights groups, because we give them a voice here that they don't get anywhere else. We're kind of the voice of the movement, if you will. That's why it's critically important. We don't want to, we don't, I'm not discouraging you from giving them money, too. They need it desperately, but so do we. So, so do that. Become a member, pick up this book, go online, look at all the wonderful uh, gifts you can get when you donate amounts for, or the uh, Greg Pallast, who we have on the show often, his wonderful books, his wonderful CDs. 818-985-5735 is the way to do it. I'm right about that. Am I not, Maria?
4: You are right. And another way to do it is to go to kpfk.org.
3: Ah. All right. Well, please, yeah, please do. That. I think
4: it's easier. But uh,
3: it it is. Depends. No, it probably is easier. Uh,
4: relative.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right. It probably is easier. Relative. You can kind of browse and take your time. You may see something you you like better than what I was just suggesting. You might want to get because there's just so many books, so many CDs, so many. Everythings that, you, that are, are important to most of our listeners and they can use. use it yourself, use it as a gift that way uh, well, you get two two gifts for the price of one, I guess. Anyway, let's now get to this important topic having to do with violence right here at home, right here in LA as a matter of fact. Uh, in this case, we're talking about violence at the hands of the police department. So Maria, please introduce this topic for us and, and our guest.
4: Yes, yes, thank you. And actually, yes, it, it concerns law enforcement all throughout California.
1: Mm-hmm. So oh, that's California.
4: A good point. Mm-hmm, California is the first state to ban something called uh, the use of excited delirium as a diagnosis or cause of death for those who have lost their lives while in police custody. If you've never heard that phrase or you don't know what exactly, quote unquote, excited delirium is, you are not alone. It's an unscientific term referring to maybe some agitation and aggressiveness, which is used by law enforcement when describing someone against whom they have already used sometimes deadly force, at minimum excessive force, for example, In Derek Chauvin's murder trial, Chauvin's defense lawyer tried to convince the jury that George Floyd was in a state of, quote, excited delirium when Chauvin pinned him down by kneeling on his neck, and that somehow justified such extreme deadly force. California then banned this use of excited delirium, and that came through the legislature as Assembly Bill 360, authored by Assemblymember Mike Gibson of Carson, Um, And our guest on this topic was key in compiling research and data to expose that excited delirium syndrome diagnosis as not only an excuse for police to use excessive force, but also as a term that cannot be untangled from racist, misogynistic, and unscientific roots. Our guest is Joanna Naples Mitchell, an international human rights lawyer who co-wrote a report published by Physicians for Human Rights in 2022 called Excited Delirium and Deaths in Police Custody, The Deadly Impact of a Baseless Diagnosis. Joanna currently serves as Director of the Program on Redress for Survivors of U.S. and Coalition Airstrikes at the Zomia Center and as U.S. Research Advisor and Expert for Physicians for Human Rights. She supports the organization's research and advocacy related to the intersection of law enforcement, racism, and medicine. Joanna Naples-Mitchell, welcome to The Lawyers Guild Show. Thank
1: you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
4: Yes. Well, can you start us off by explaining what you have researched and and what you know excited delirium uh, means or what it's used, how it's used, where the term comes from, and what inspired you to write a report about it?
1: Absolutely. Uh, And honestly, I think you've given a pretty good definition of excited delirium yourself at the beginning of the show um, in that it is a concept and a term that is used to describe a person who is in an agitated state of some sort, who's acting, like you said, acting maybe aggressive, or maybe breaking glass, possibly under the influence of one or more substances or having a psychiatric crisis. So really a range of different signs, symptoms, and underlying medical conditions. And the idea is this person is at risk of sudden death at any time, basically from the level of excitement their body's experiencing. That's the idea of excited delirium. And as you know, as you already mentioned, so this is where human rights found out that there is no medical basis for this concept. And in fact, it's been promoted by physicians and others who have conflicts of interest in actually you know, having this term be accepted. Um, but it originated with forensic pathologist in Miami in the 1980s, Dr. Charles Wetley, who used this term in reports on cocaine intoxication, mainly in men who were being restrained mainly by police. And rather than looking at the restraint as something that could actually potentially be endangering their lives and preventing them from breathing, he assumed they were dying from having ingested small, non-lethal amounts of cocaine that combined with the excitement, the agitation they were experiencing, he hypothesized would lead to sudden death. That's, those are the origins of the term. And what we see as it evolves is he then goes on to hypothesize that there's a female version of this that is leading to deaths of black women from small amounts of cocaine, all in the same neighborhood of Miami, women who were found dead in various states of undress. He is a deputy medical examiner in this part of Miami, and so he's saying this in his professional capacity as someone who's supposed to be investigating these deaths, hypothesizing that oh, maybe the male of the species becomes psychotic and the female of the species become, you know, dies in relation to sex. So he's using extraordinarily racist terminology to describe the deaths of black women. And it turns out he was dead wrong. But in fact, it was a serial killer responsible for the deaths of the majority of these women. That's what his boss found and investigators found when they looked at the evidence from this case. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of discrediting Wetley, you know, this actually somehow enabled him to continue and He continued to perpetuate this theory of what became a theory of black male death from cocaine um, and balloon from there. And I could go on and on and on about the history. I think since Mm -hmm. we have a short time, the bottom line is since then, we see these physicians who are on the payroll of Kaiser are working as um, defense experts in court cases. Promoting this term and saying, oh, you know, people aren't dying in police custody from use of force. It's because they were always going to die spontaneously because of it excited delirium, because they were so agitated. Um, and how we get to the present day in PHR doing this report is after this term has been disseminated by various medical experts over the years, by Pazer International itself, um, to medical examiners and police chiefs, if we get to the summer of 2020, which is where PHR comes in, there already has been a movement of advocates and affected families for years trying to discredit this term and know that there's a medical basis. The summer of 2020, we see the time really coming to the fore in some very high profile police killings. I've already mentioned the killing of George Floyd and also the killing of Elijah McLean, who in his case was simply walking home from a convenience store was not experiencing any kind of substance use crisis or agitation at all. Was simply walking home as a young black man, and was essentially assaulted by police. And diagnosed with excited delirium, um, Colorado had protocols on giving people ketamine, a sedative, when they have you know they're supposedly exhibiting signs of excited delirium, and he died in custody. And so PHR saw these high-profile cases in which this supposedly medical terminology was being used to explain or justify deaths in police custody. And we felt that it was really important as a physician's human rights organization to investigate this concept and see what was actually going on. And so that's what, that was where this, where we came in and where this began.
3: And, and, and so who, when you're doing, preparing this kind of a report, uh, who are you interviewing? Who did you interview? What kind of data did you review when writing uh, the excited delirium report? And uh, again, because I'm, I'm mindful of the clock, uh, not only that, but what were some of the key findings of the report, then, sure. based on the interviews and, and the data?
1: Sure. Uh, so we we did a series of interviews with medical experts, including forensic pathologists, psychiatrists, and others um, you know, who would have expertise in this emergency position. We spoke to lawyers. We spoke to experts on crisis response, including folks doing mental health crisis response, as well as law enforcement training. We spoke to two families whose loved ones' deaths have been attributed to excited delirium to understand how this affected them. Mm -hmm. Altogether, we spoke to 31 different people. Um, We also did an archival review of legal documents and media to better understand the history of excited delirium and how it's evolved over time. And then finally, our physician co-authors did a medical literature review you know, looking at all of the literature on excited delirium so we could evaluate, is there actually a medical basis for this term? And that's included in the report. Mm -hmm. In terms of our key findings, we found that excited delirium cannot be disentangled from the fundamentally racist and unscientific history that I described to you. It's, you know, it's not included in the International Classification for Diseases or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders At this point already, it's been disavowed by the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association. This is two years ago when we published the report. We found the medical literature that our physicians reviewed was of poor quality, with homogeneous citations. Um, There were these conflicts of interest that were not disclosed, including taser and defense experts. There's no consensus in the definition, and it's been disproportionately applied to black men and relies on racist tropes. Um, Hmm. And so that's, you know, that's the bottom line there. There's just no basis for this concept. It's just extraordinarily harmful and needs, needs to end.
4: Hmm. Well, just to remind listeners, you're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM, and it is fun drive time. So please go to kpfk.org. Give generously because you can hear a fantastic independent voice like Joanna Naples Mitchell, who we are interviewing right now about The report called Excited Delirium and Deaths in Police Custody. So, Joanna, can you tell us, um, I know the report concludes with some recommendations. Um, Can you summarize some of those for us before we go into how California is now the first state to ban this, the use of that term?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So our first targets in terms of advocacy to the report would be Two medical associations who have long lent credence to this term and endorsed it over the years, the American College of Emergency Physicians and the National Association of Medical Examiners. We called on them to reverse their positions on excited delirium to look at the actual medical evidence and conclude that in fact there was no basis and acknowledge this racist history that I've mentioned. Um, And I'm happy to report that both organizations have in fact in the past year rejected excited delirium um, and in particular the American College of Emergency Physicians had a notorious white paper in 2009 that had endorsed the concept that that was written by a number of physicians who actually did have conflicts of interest. Um, they have since rescinded that white paper and said it's no longer valid, should not be cited in court. So those are two recommendations that have been you know, implemented. We're excited to engage with those associations more to ensure their memberships understand these policy changes, but tremendous progress there. We also call on individual physicians, including medical examiners, other death investigators who may not be physicians, like coroners, to ensure that they are not using excited delirium as a cause of death. And similarly, call on other medical professional health associations to disavow this concept, many of which have since the report came out. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: State and
1: local governments, we um, call on them to you know, according to how excited delirium has been used, evaluate data on it, um, and for police associations and first responders to stop disseminating protocols. And we see that you know, that's what this California legislation does and more. So it even goes beyond some of the recommendations explicitly stated in the report to try to wholesale, you know, stop the use of this term within the state of California in the context where it's doing harm. We also recognize like, that often this term is being used in the context of a police response to someone's and the mental health, behavioral health crisis, we call for better resources, non-police resources to respond to people in crisis, and specifically greater investment in alternative models of crisis response, where health professionals and social workers are meeting, and not law enforcement. Um, so those are some of the key recommendations. I think especially applicable in the context of California.
4: Well, and
3: and again, as a, <clears throat> excuse me, as a former trial lawyer, I, I'm. I've been thinking about how the practicality of this. It would seem pretty damn strong. Uh, if it's actually banned um, uh, in uh, as, as a legitimate diagnosis, then it would seem to me that when the police in a trial where somebody has died in custody uh, won't be able to use it or won't be able to uh, – frankly use it at all The to the extent they would bring on experts to try to say in our judgment the person probably died because of uh, excited delirium that's been banned in California so it would seem as though um, that defense uh, no matter how the defense would try to bring it into trial would no longer be available uh, I don't know if you're in a position to comment on that or not but I'm just offering my own view on it I would think that's the case uh, do you know anything about that or is that your assumption as well
1: yeah, that's my reading of the California law, um, is that it, it specifically says that evidence related to excited delirium should not be admissible. Right. So, to me, that's pretty clear. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out in future court cases in terms of the, the law being implemented.
3: Sure. Well, all right. And now, do please tell us a bit about how Physicians for Human Rights, a wonderful group, uh, went about <laughs> persuading California to be the first state to ban excited delirium. It's no secret. That um, getting any legislature, even one supposedly as liberal as the California legislature, to take an action uh, that strikes the kind of blow at police misconduct that, frankly, this bill did and does, um, suggests that they were pretty – not only were they obviously effective, but they overcame some pretty great odds. So tell us about that. Who, who pushed it? What was their strategy? How difficult was it to get, uh, uh, to get the, the, the legislation passed?
1: Well, I will say it was a remarkable coalition effort um, that was led by the legislators who worked on this, as well as the family of Angelo Quinto, who have been just tremendous advocates in California for so many policy changes after experiencing an unbelievable loss themselves. So they were really instrumental, in my view, in getting this passed. Uh, What PHR did was, of course, uh, we put our report out there as a resource so that advocates could look to this and Mm -hmm. introduce legislation or you know, push for police departments to change policies. Um, But we did work with an organization called the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, which is based in New York, as well as the organization Campaign Zero to draft the model legislation, um, kind of based on New York law, and then we shopped it around to a number of forensic pathologists, psychiatrists, other doctors in our network um, to just make sure that it made sense from a physician standpoint, um, especially figuring out the definition of excited delirium. If you want to ban something that doesn't exist. It's kind of challenging to figure out what's the right way to describe this. Um, and ultimately, we sent we sent that um, that draft to Mike Gibson's office, who has been an amazing lead on this, and they took it and ran with it. And so we, you know, we handed off the draft to them; they took it and ran with it. And then we, at the time the bill was on the governor's desk, you know, mobilized several thousand PHR supporters to call on Governor Newsom to sign, which happily he did. So I'd say we played a, an important role at the beginning and end of the process, but actually getting over the finish line, I really credit in California advocates, you know, you know Assemblymember Gibson's office, the Quinto Collins family and others. Who are pushing this? Um, and did an amazing
3: job. Well, all right, but that's wonderful, though. I are to be congratulated for it. Everyone is, uh, Maria, I wonder, given our time, and wanting to leave a little bit at the end, um, <clears throat> might you just take the last question and, and go from, and we can go from there. Sure,
4: sure. Yeah, I did. I did want to make sure that listeners know where to read the excited delirium and deaths in police custody report and how they can get more information. And maybe especially if you're listening from other states, how can we get such a law passed in other states, not just California?
1: Mm -hmm. Amazing. So first of all, um, if you want to read more about the report, you can go to phr.org. And actually you'll see, we've got a, a recent blog post on our website about Excited Desirium because we have a new initiative with the organization campaign zero where we have a resource website for advocates, for community members who want to take action in their community. So if you go to endexciteddelirium.org, it will give you kind of an overview of the the term, how it's been disavowed. And then we have a take action page that, um, you know, will give people ideas for what they can do, including contacting local officials, contacting local police oversight boards. I should note in California, in addition to the, the law change, we also have the Bay Area Rapid Transit Police Department was the first police department nationwide after our report came out to change its policy, and this is our excited delirium. Their oversight office played an amazing role there, and there's a private company called Lexapol that also that you know runs police chains, trainings all across California. They've also changed their policy now. So California is really the leader in this nationwide effort to ban the concept um, and we're hopefully seeing other states starting to follow suit now. There's momentum and news reports about Hawaii and Colorado. And I've heard rumblings of a couple other states, too. We'll see, you know, when there's public, public news about other states. But I think it really is about citizens taking action here. The bills we've seen in these other states are in response to local cases where someone dies in police custody and their death is mm-hmm. going right. you to know, in Colorado, yeah, Elijah McLean so you know, salient um, hawaii similarly it's an impacted family who's leading this effort well
3: this is really big stuff and, and i can't thank you enough maria thank
1: you so much yeah no really
3: this is uh, this is big stuff and and i'm proud of california and and my hat's off to you <laughs> and all the people who worked on it so really i uh, joanna naples mitchell thank you for your work thank you for being with us here on the lawyers guild show today and um, and you. perhaps we'll, we'll talk to you again, I'm sure. Keep up this great I work. <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>.
1: bye. <laughs> thank oh, you for what you
3: do. Sure, thank you. Well, all right, we do have just a, a couple of minutes left, but <clears throat> I did want to uh, say that we do need your support, friends. Let me just, if I might, um, uh, uh, try to develop a little further the, the idea I was presenting uh, earlier at the show. Uh, uh, when you contribute to KPFK, not only do you ensure that we stay on the air, because uh, you know it's very tough these days with all the competition that's out there from uh, less uh, less pleasant sources, shall we say, uh, to keep a station like this on the air. The government doesn't like us; we don't get government money. Uh, the only people who like us are are the good progressive. Human rights believing people in the country and here in Los Angeles when it comes to our station. And therefore, we're part of the whole progressive human rights movement in Los Angeles is what I was saying. And we people don't often think of it that way. Um, they think, well, I've given money to the Lawyers Guild. Thank you for that. But uh, Lawyers Guild needs your money. But so does KPFK. I've given money to uh, Black Lives Matter. Well, thank you very much for that. We are a big supporter of Black Lives Matter, in fact. But we need your money here at the station as well. Or I've given to immigrant rights Group, whatever it is. They're the first to tell us. They understand the role we pay. When we show up at a demonstration, oh, thank you for talking about our demonstration. More people are here because you talked about it. Thank you for talking about we need uh, money for, we need more people on the buses to fill those buses, going to the demonstration somewhere. Oh, thank you for having our chief organizers on. There were so many more people at our, our meeting now. We have more people working in the community about what's going on there with the police or with the landlords or whatever it might be. So we are part of the movement. We're the voice of the movement movement, if you will. And therefore, it's just as critical to keep us afloat as it is to keep these wonderful movement groups afloat. All the wonderful groups that are demonstrating in the streets now about what is going on in Gaza. Yes, yes, yes. We're big supporters of that. Uh, I've given money to, I I suspect, I suspect uh, Maria has, uh, knowing Maria. But this station, independent of that, needs your support too, so that we continue to play the part we play. We don't march in the streets. We get people into the streets. We don't sue the landlords. We bring you the voices of people who do and tell you how to do it, etc., etc., etc. So please, my friends, give us a call at 818-985-5735, or as Maria Hall says, Hey, it's easier to just go to the website, kpfk.org. You'll see all sorts of ways we say thank you. you know, right now, we say, hey, pick up The Hidden History of the War on Voting by Tom Hartman, $75. A membership of $25, I think, is, is wonderful. If you're feeling pretty flushed these days, a lot of people still don't have much money, feeling pretty flush, well, give us a 1000 give us 500 bucks. become a, a sustaining member. You can find out how to do that on our website. Maria, am I right about all this?
4: yes and not to mention the fact that everything is going subscription service yes so that's true Good. please we need to keep the airwaves free we need to keep independent voices out there for everyone so if you do have a little bit to share we can all pitch in just a little bit and it then it keeps it going
3: yeah no yeah that that's what it is my friends <clears throat> it doesn't cost a fortune um, but it is just you when we say we're public radio when we' we're, we're the only public radio station in town of which what I'm saying is true by the way in, in large measure uh, and so uh, and we don't take government we don't take corporate money and all that kind of stuff and that's fine they do it they do some great stuff for public radio this is a movement radio station this is a station on behalf of humanity and human rights and civil rights and ending racism sexism and all that and therefore we're part of that movement we depend on you the movement wants you to contribute to us. They do the best they can to keep supporting us too as we support them. We're sisters and brothers in this together and you're part of that family, the KPFK family. So give us a call. Give us a call. Uh, Go on our website. Find out how you can contribute contribute as much as you can uh, and keep doing what the song says because we'll be right back with you again next week uh, and we hope to keep coming back for week after week after week if you have enough support. Um, so until then this is Jim Lafferty and by his health of myself and Maria Hall saying please uh, stay healthy uh, stand up for your rights and we'll be back with you next week I
2: know you don't know what life is really worth It's a all that needs a I was turning the radio dial on the car trying to find something other than uh, the usual dribble and fluff and nothingness on the rest of the airwaves and I just uh, stumbled across KPFK and I was just drawn to it like a magnet and I was just listening to it intently and all of a sudden I said I have got to pull off the freeway here, I found the nearest telephone booth, I called my wife and said You have got to turn on 90.7 FM. I will talk to you when I get home. This is incredible. What I noticed was different right away was that people were being interviewed at length. And when they were talking about the purpose for the station, the reason for being was to promote understanding among peoples of all races and and, uh, from all countries and all classes and to provide information about the events of the world that were not reported or not reported completely or in-depth by any of the other major news outlets, uh, broadcast or print. And I just thought that was phenomenal, and I, I've been blessed ever since.
1: That's what is good about KPFK. You do get it that it's the people, not the manufacturers that are selling us all the